Good morning. We're gonna, about to get started here, and um, but first, just want to uh, welcome everyone to our first forum of uh, fall 2022. Myself and Elizabeth and several of us on the formation committee have uh, worked hard to find people from um, all over the spectrum to talk about our common life of faith, especially engaged in the church's um, larger mission for dismantling racism. We welcome the people online. If um, you miss a forum and want to catch up, it, uh, they're live right now on YouTube and then they're archived on our YouTube page and you can watch it. And not that I would suggest watching it on two times speed, but you know, that's like available if you want to catch up. Uh, let's start with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, in this season of creation, we thank you for the rain, for replenishing the earth. We pray for all people struggling through the environmental crisis. We may be your hands in this world. We thank you for this Sunday morning, for the gift of fellowship for this church but especially to gather together and talk solemnly about the challenges facing this world. May we act with urgency for the least of these, for those who need our help the most. In your holy name we pray, amen. The very Reverend Catherine Ragsdale has served for 17 years on the National Board of the Religious Coalition for Re Reproductive Choice. She's on the board of the NARAL, the Pro-Choice America, the White House Project, the Progressive Religious Partnership, as well as the Binational Advisory Board for the Center for the Prevention of Sexual and Domestic Violence. Most recently, she was the CEO of the National Abortion Federation. She was named President and Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School in Boston, Massachusetts in 2009. Um, and most notably for us at St. Columbus, she's the spouse of our beloved Mally, who is in the back. Um, big hand to both of you. Please join me in welcoming our speaker this morning, Catherine. Are we working? There we are. Thank you, Joshua, and thank you all of you. It's nice to be back with you. Uh, I'm going to turn on this little timer here because when I was here preaching last month, several of you were saying to me, what do we do? What do we do? And I promised you that we would at least start that conversation today. So I'm going to do a very quick piece on just how bad it is because you all have newspapers and televisions and you pretty much know that, I think a little bit of where the church is, and then more on some history of how we got here leading into what do we do, all right? This seems like we're all on the same page. Excellent. Uh, how bad is it? It's really, really bad, uh, especially for those with the fewest resources, which as always are BIPOC communities, um, and where they're even, so it's not new that it's bad for them, it's just even worse. So even when abortion was available and when it still is near where someone lives, there's still the issues of affording it, since Medicaid won't cover it in most places. 
Uh, there's still the issues of getting time off from your job to go, of getting childcare, of getting all the things that you need to go. Um, now, one in three women will need to travel. There have always been a lot who needed to travel. That's tricky not only because it's additional time off and it's additional childcare and it's maybe people who you're not safe having them know have a better opportunity to find out, but it's also tricky simply for documentation. What if you're an immigrant without documentation? Can't get on an airplane, but maybe you can find someone to drive you. There are lots of places, Texas foremost among them, that have set up checkpoints at the borders. So, tough if you're an immigrant. What if you're a citizen who looks like an immigrant and can't afford a car so you don't have a driver's license, you don't have a passport, you don't tend to carry your birth certificate around with you? You're running into the same kind of difficulties. This is just simply catastrophic with the worst consequences on the people who can least afford to absorb them. But let's be clear, it's catastrophic for all of us, even those of us who have enough money to go wherever we need to go, or who are old enough that we're not gonna need to face this ourselves. It not only feeds misogyny, but it feeds a climate of intolerance and disregard for others that shapes our common lives in ways that reflect back on everyone, no matter who you are. But again, on some worse than others. So here's a little piece of history that you may or may not know about the reproductive justice movement within the reproductive health or abortion rights movement. Uh, reproductive justice movement was officially formed by a bunch of African-American women in Chicago in 1994, in the airport, I believe they were meeting. Um, but its seeds date back much longer than that. In fact, back in the 80s, when I was president and board chair of the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights, there was a lot of push on us to change our name, to get abortion out of the name. It would make it easier to fundraise. Foundations would be more comfortable. And I just, foot down, absolutely not. People need to say the word, we need to normalize this. But then a committee of women of color came to me and said, all right, some of us agree with you on the abortion word for those reasons, some of us don't. Beside the point, here's the point they said. As long as you're only talking about access to abortion, you're really only speaking on behalf of the privileged who have the opportunity to choose one way or the other. What about all the people for whom abortion is not a choice, but their only option? We then changed our name to Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, and we changed our agenda, and I changed the content of my speeches, and we started talking about prenatal care and health care throughout life. We talked about child care and education and jobs, employment, all the things that would make it possible for a person to choose to have a child as well as to choose not to have a child. We still talked about abortion because that other choice is still necessary, but a real choice means that you have all of those options in front of you. So the reproductive justice movement has very deep roots, but in 1994 they named themselves 
and they really launched themselves as activists and political theorists who have continued to shape the movement. And there are a lot of organizations that focus almost exclusively on abortion rights and therefore don't call themselves reproductive justice organizations, but who do always strive to use a reproductive justice lens and to give credit to the communities of color that formulated and continue to be the backbone of this movement and this theory. All right, so. There's how bad it is. What about the church? So let's talk about what the Bible says about abortion. We're done. <laughs> the Bible says nothing about abortion. Now, there are people who will claim that it does. You know that, it happens all the time. And one of my sort of favorite examples of this is Psalm 139. They say, for you created my inmost parts and knit me together in my mother's womb. You see, they say, God has known us from when we were fetuses in the womb. We are people, that fetus is a child, abortion is wrong. They never go two verses, two verses, that's verse 12, verse 14. My body was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and woven in the depths of the earth. Nobody ever says, see, we're, God knows us when we're being formed in the depths of the earth. And then I guess beam me in, Scotty, into the mother's womb and continue to be formed. What's clear is Bible, or the prayer book in this case, not a medical book. It's not attempting to, to give a treatise on gestation. This psalm, which is one of my favorites, this is where can I go from your love? If I fly to the heavens, you are there. If I go to the depths of the earth, you are there. This is poetry. It's a hymn about the omnipresence of God throughout time and space, throughout our lives and ways beyond our imagining. That's what it's about. It's not about when do cells become people? When does life start? and what should we do about abortion? Claiming that the Bible prohibits abortion is not only a lie, it's a lie that inhibits, that precludes the kind of civil discourse on which democracy, morality, and simple clear thinking depend. What, and yet, people's opinions on both sides of this issue are shaped by their faith and their understanding of the Bible, so one could honestly, with integrity, say, you know, I read all that stuff in the Bible about protecting the most vulnerable among us, and to me that seems like fetuses, and, and for me, that's the reason I think abortion should never be allowed. That's honest. And I can respond to that with, wow, that's interesting. I read exactly the same sections, and that's what makes me think abortion must always be safe and legal and affordable and accessible for all women. We still disagree, but we have the basis for an honest disagreement. Similarly, someone can say, you know, I think the fetus and the woman have equal moral value, and therefore you can't have an abortion. And I, I believe I see that in the Bible, again, in its talk about the vulnerable, and I can say, well, it doesn't seem that way to me at all. And in fact, Jewish tradition teaches quite explicitly that scripture says, 
that the fetus and the woman do not have equal moral value and that if the two are both at risk, the woman's life must always take priority. Jewish law. People of deep faith and good conscience can and do disagree. It would be good, maybe even useful, if we could do that honestly and with an understanding of the limits of our authority to impose our conclusions on the lives of others. So where's the Episcopal Church in all of this? I hope you know that the Episcopal Church has been pro-choice since the 60s, prior to Roe. We always have been, and we stand in good company. The Presbyterian Church, the Lutherans, the United Methodists, the Unitarians, the United Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, Reform, Reconstructionists, and Conservative Movements of Judaism, and the Reformed LDS, Latter-day Saints, that's Mormons, my friends, pro-choice, have been for decades. Pro-choice not in spite of our faith, but because of it, because we believe our faith requires us to allow this care for the women among us, the families, the children already born who need these options. So why don't the press and the world, and we ourselves often know that, and why don't we make sure that we're talking about that and making that known? Here's the history part. We're going to spend a little more time on this. And um, this is a piece that far too few, too few people know, I think. And there's a couple different things that happened at once in the 70s. It used to be that the religious right stayed out of politics. They believed that that was dirty stuff of the world and they paid attention to their own spiritual lives. In uh, the early 70s, well, in the early 70s, the IRS said you can't, colleges and universities can't discriminate racially and still collect tax dollars. Bob Jones University used to not admit black people. Then in uh, 1975, I believe, they started to admit black people, but they wouldn't allow interracial dating. And about that time, the IRS said, not with our tax dollars. Now, Bob Jones still thought that getting involved in the politics and the things of the world was dirty, the university was dirty, and so they fine, take your tax money, we're stepping out, and they still didn't get engaged, but it caught the attention of the evangelical right, including Jerry Falwell, who again had been kind of non-political, but then the moral majority came to rise, because there was this real concern about the government meddling in the affairs of the church. Now, again, let's be clear, they weren't telling Bob Jones University or anybody else what they could or couldn't do, preach, believe, or do, only what they could do with our tax dollars. But evangelical Christian right was upset about that. On the other hand, it's really hard to build a movement on pro-racism. So they went after women. It's a little easier to go after women in general it's a lot easier to build a narrative that says, actually, we're protecting babies. That's how that piece started. We're protecting babies. Now, at the same time, other sectors of the far right, not religious sectors, but other sectors of the right, were noticing that the churches, the mainline churches, had been quite successful as partners in the civil rights and anti-war movements. And now we're out of Vietnam, 
we passed the civil rights bill, things are settling down a bit, they became very concerned that those churches are gonna turn their attention to capitalism. Oh my goodness. And so, Institute for Religion and Democracy here in Washington, some other far right sector groups came up with a strategy to destabilize the mainline churches so that they would not have the bandwidth to get involved in social justice work. They would create fights within the churches around women's ordination, around abortion, and around gay rights. And they would tear the churches up to the point that they just had no, nothing left to do social justice work. And they were hugely successful. Decades, decades, all we seemed to do was our internal fighting about that. You might think, well, finally, we've pretty much resolved all of that. We know where the church stands on abortion. We're ordaining women. We're ordaining lesbians and gay men. We're marrying, marrying us. We're doing all these things. That's settled. Yes, but there's a sociological concept called legacy drag, which at the time I was told about it, I misheard as legacy dread, which is not so far off. Basically, what has happened is the churches are so terrified of the discord that has ruled our lives for decades that we are afraid to talk about anything that might trigger discord again. It was a deliberate strategy to create those internal fights. And now, even in places like the Episcopal Church, where those issues are pretty much subtle, where the fighting is over, legacy drag, fear of conflict continues to play out. What does it look like in the Episcopal Church? So we settled the gay rights issue, right? We don't fight about that anymore. We still don't really want to talk about it. We settled abortion. We still don't really want to talk about it. We will talk about it's not that we just don't want to talk about socially divisive things. We will talk about gun control. My social media feed pretty much every week has pictures of bishops making statements and walking, marching in parades and being clear where the church stands on gun control. We will talk about racial justice and Black Lives Matter as we should. And we will make it a church priority and invest our money and our time and our staff and our attention into the national church. It's a huge priority, as it should be. We'll talk about immigration. We will not only talk about them, but we will assert, rightly I believe, that it is our duty as prophetic ministers to talk about them. That as Christians we can do nothing less than to talk about and fight about these things. But we won't talk about abortion, and we prefer not to talk about gay rights, because those are the ones we have institutional PTSD over that was deliberately inflicted on us strategically. Those are, the, those are the ones that clergy mean when they call me before I come to preach. And let me be clear, it didn't happen here. But sometimes when clergy call me before I come to preach and say, we don't talk about political issues here. They don't mean immigration. They don't mean homelessness. They don't mean Black Lives Matter. They mean abortion. That's what they don't want to talk about because we were strategically destroyed and we have legacy drag. So what do we do about all this? There's the immediate problem. The DMV still is pretty safe 
for per caring for abortion and has several clinics that provide excellent care through the latest, latest need. That means there are a lot of people going to be coming here. And just also bear in mind, every restriction you put on abortion makes every abortion later. Right now, not only does somebody have to raise the money or, or to get the care, they now have to raise the money to get the care and to travel and to make the travel arrangements. And while the time is passing while they do that, the abortion becomes more expensive, so they got more money to raise. So it's going to be later and later care, more and more need here in the DMV. I invite you to think about what you might do about that. Hospitality, childcare, transportation, food, gas money. You're creative people, I know you can think about that, but there will be a need and it will exist here for the foreseeable future because care seems to be safe and legal here. However, we have all seen the unimaginable happen in the blink of an eye more than once lately. You could lose accessibility here as well. So here's what else to do immediately. Vote. And remember to vote not just about narrowly abortion per se, but the whole range of reproductive justice issues that affect the lives of the most vulnerable and in a ripple effect affect all of our lives. Vote. Support Emily's list to uh, elect people who share your values. Support the National Women's Law Center or NARAL Pro-Choice America to work on policy issues. Support the Center for Reproductive Rights. They're the law firm that is, hold, that is uh, arguing most of the cases for providers that, get their, that work their way up to the Supreme Court. Those are things you can do hands-on. What are the bigger picture things? We have to change the narrative. The world has to understand that faith communities are by and large pro-choice and always have been. They need to understand that the communities as a whole and the individuals within them are pro-choice not in spite of our faith but because of it. And that while we respect other people's right to disagree and to make different choices for themselves, we will not stand back and see minority religious opinions or even majority religious opinions imposed on everyone else. We have to change the narrative. And we have to fight legacy drag or legacy dread. I may just like see if make a movement to change that name. We have to fight legacy drag, legacy dread. We have to dare to risk conflict. And one of the things, I used to work at the National Church offices in New York, and uh, one of the things we used to tell people is make it harder for us to do the wrong thing than the right thing. You know, our friends never complain. People who agree with us or are sympathetic to the things that we're up against, they don't complain. It's the other guys who complain. We used to say, write angry, to our friends, write angry letters about the things that we're not doing. Create the pressure that makes it easier for us to do the right thing than the wrong thing. Harder for us not to do the right thing. We have to individually and corporately stand up to that and speak out and dare to take risks individually, in our faith communities, in our diocese, in our national church, in our governments, everywhere. Resist legacy drag. Get mad about legacy drag. It was a strategy designed to destroy us and it darn near succeeded. Get mad and fight back and stand up and help everyone else to do the same that's where I want to stop and say, 
What do you think? <laughs> do you have ideas? Do you have concerns? I think there's a mic here. Yeah, I'm just going to ask uh, for us to use the mic for a couple. Oh, yeah. First of all, thank you. is both important for the people who are joining us online or hereafter. Also, some of us have learning or learning, um, listening uh, difficulties, so please, hearing difficulties, please use the mic. Thank you. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you. That was so clarifying and inspiring and maddening and all the things that it's supposed to be. Um, I just wanted to share something that's happening in Washington. Um, Arena Stage, um, opening October 20th and running right up before the midterms, is a production called My Body, No Choice. And it was uh, it's eight playwrights that have been commissioned to tell their stories in relationship not only to reproductive rights, but all the choices that we make about our bodies. And we're hoping that we'll have incredible national impact the script is available for other theaters and community organizations around the country to produce it. So I just turn your attention to the role that the arts can play in this uh, time as well. Thank you. I read about that the other day. I meant to say, Mally, we need to go. I'm so excited about that. And I will also say that I used to, when people used to ask me what to do, I would tell them, if you have any capacity to write fiction, do that because people don't very often get moved by arguments. We are where we are in this country around gay issues, not because of arguments, but because like Will and Grace came into our living room, right? And then other people started to come out. Fiction, the arts, are an incredible way to get past those dug-in heels barriers and get into people's hearts, minds, and emotions and move them. So, yeah, let's support Arena Stage. Uh, that, that's where it is, right, Arena St Thank you. And, uh, and if you've got the capacity to do that kind of work, creative work, do it. Don't wait. Just, oh, good, you can hear me. Um, my concern is, uh, even though the DMV area, is, as you said, is pretty safe, um, People need to focus on the elections in other states because Congress did override the handgun ban in the district and they could very well, if they got a majority, never know how crazy it can get, override anything that the district uh, city council has done in terms of abortion rights and things like that. So, I just mentioned that, so you have to watch the other elections. It's the problem for the district. Yes, thank you. And not just national elections, but what's happening in the state houses that has this, and even in the school boards that has this blowback, which is one of the reasons I, I point you to places like Emily's List that are keeping a bigger eye. It's not just vote and work for voting here. Absolutely right. The entire country matters, and what happens out there is going to influence what happens here. I had one question also. Uh, you, you mentioned the, uh, the mainstream Protestant church, uh, but the, there's a, isn't there a fair amount of Catholic uh, support for abortion, not from the hierarchy, but from the mainstream? And has there been an attempt to build an alliance with them? 
Yeah, there's a group called Catholics for Choice um, here in Washington, marvelous group to associate with. And yeah, the majority of Roman Catholic individuals are pro-choice, and I believe they have a higher percentage of abortion than most other religious denominations. And uh, I think evangelicals aren't far behind them. Um, partly denial and partly restrictions around birth control as well. Um, I don't know, I don't know if anybody's ever been able to figure out what the proportion of priests who are pro-choice are, but there are a lot of them. Uh, always have been, still are, and building those alliances is very useful, though dangerous for people who are employed by the church. Uh, it can get them done in. My question has to do with the term choice. It's always bothered me because I think people who aren't tuned in very much to this issue think, well, gee, should I have a baby or should I go on vacation? <laughs> and, you know, that's not the, I wish we could change the narrative around what we're really talking about here. Yeah, and if you have suggestions, well, I mean, we pay communications firms big bucks to do focus groups and try to figure that out. We, we went with that because pro-abortion seems too loaded for one, and we're not pro-abortion, we're pro-access to abortion, the opportunity for abortion if that's what you need. And I remember at the General Convention of the Episcopal Church years and years ago, I was, we were fighting on these resolutions. The pro-choice side was winning dramatically. But I was walking next to an old seminary classmate of mine who is sort of the chief lobbyist for National Organization of Episcopalians for Life, which did not mean you couldn't convert. It was an anti-choice Episcopalian group. And as we're listening to the debate, he turns to me and he says, you know, if we can't even agree among ourselves about when this is right and when it is wrong, then really the government shouldn't be making those decisions. <laughs> I looked at him and said, you understand that's the definition of pro-choice, right? But, um, so that's where we ended up with, was to try to make that piece clear. Have been very unsuccessful at coming up with anything better. I, I completely hear what you're saying, and, and uh, do be in touch if you come up with a good idea. <laughs> um, I'm, I'd like to speak, my question concerns the overlap between abortion and racism and race that you acknowledged in the conversation. Um, many of us are old enough to remember it uh, back in the 70s and early 80s before he ran for president, Jesse Jackson uh, denounced abortion as uh, killing black babies and as uh, uh, black, uh, black extermination, black, well, ge black genocide. Um, now, a, a shrill overstatement, but apart from the, ignoring the shrill overstatement, um, I'm wondering how your, your, your worldview in defending abortion takes into account the um, uh, unborn black child, if nobody does anything to the child, let's take a four-month-old, two arms, two legs, a head and a beating heart on a solid sonogram. I'm an African-American mother. If carried the term, the child will be a boy or a girl, grow into a man or woman, and contribute and vote in society. Um, and I'm curious how your religious, um, sociological, political, whatever, you're a woman of so many different uh, expertises. How does the unborn black child fit into your 
uh, worldview. Yeah, and you're right. There have been a lot of arguments like that. But you could also use that same argument taken to its logical extension is to say all black women should be turned into breeders to just continue to pump out black babies. It's, it takes us to the need for reproductive justice so that people have the opportunity to bear and raise a child if that's what they choose to do. And that's why we need to fight equally as hard for the education and childcare and prenatal care and all those things that enable women to keep a child. But in the meantime, and even once those things exist, there's a quote um, the Religious Coalition used to use a lot from a 12th century rabbi. It says, no woman is required to build the world by destroying herself. And while no individual woman of any color should be required to have a child because somebody wants to adopt, because the world needs more black babies, because any other number of true reasons, no one is required to, to turn over their life to fulfilling those needs. Um, so on the one hand, everybody needs to have access to the to abortion if that's what they choose to do, and to address the concern about the racial implications of the fact that more black people's, a higher percentage of black people are forced to have this care. Bear in mind also, the uh, mortality rate for pregnancy and childbirth is far higher than abortion. For black women, it's astronom astronomically higher. So what we really need to be about is racially sensitive healthcare. Uh, trauma-informed health care, and the whole range of social support systems that make it possible for folks to choose to have, to choose to have children if that's what they want to do, and to raise them in a healthy, safe environment that's not going to compromise their lives, the lives of the children they already have, or the health of their community. And it's, you, I mean, you've hit upon, there's no sort of easy answer to that. It's a, it's a, tough, complex social problem. Um, hey, Catherine, I was wondering, the, the comment that you made about the, the seminary and classmate, like that's your defining pro-choice. Um, the last few weeks since Kansas, the vote in Kansas, I feel like I've heard something similar happen in a lot of even mainstream conservative media where they're talking about carving out exceptions uh, for yeah. abortion which when they talk about it, it sounds almost exactly what Roe was designed to have, um, these exceptions for when abortions are um, something that are, that are important for most people recognize as, and that kind of common ground that you've been getting to. Can you talk about that in the sense of what, what Dobbs, um, the obstruction that Dobbs might have for that for what most people consider to be a pretty common sense and we've got time for several more questions, y'all. So. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> this country has been um, substantially pro-choice for a very long time, in the same way that we're substantially pro-gun control. Um, what stands in the way are political machinations and the need of the right wing to cater to its base and all sorts of complex things, including legacy drag that keeps us from standing up and fighting about these things because we're worried about creating the discord um, or we're worried that if we speak up, somebody else is going to create a discord that's going to tear our communities apart. So on the one hand, thank you, Kansas, 
and you're right, that's having some blowback in other, there are certainly plenty of states that are trying to outlaw it completely, which if you, if you go with their narrative trick of this is a baby, makes sense that there would be no exceptions, right? You kind of have to abandon that particular trope to realize that asking a 10-year-old to carry a rapist's child is wrong. That, and if once you abandon that, then you have to also conclude that asking anybody to carry a pregnancy that they are not prepared for any reason, not ours to decide, that they are not prepared to carry is wrong. This is about healthcare, and it's not our business to be telling other people. How that's gonna play out electorally and in the courts remains to be, remains to be seen. I, I know that there's a, a lot of the loudly anti-choice candidates in races across the country have started taking their anti-choice stuff off of their websites and have quit talking about it. They've begun to discover that this is not necessarily any longer a political strong suit, uh, a, winning, a winning tactic for them. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well. Um, I, I, you know, Joshua, heaven only knows. The reality is things that we would never, ever have believed were remotely possible have been happening, like Dobbs and a few other things before it. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Hi there. Thank you so much. Um, this is um, in some ways reassuring and infuriating, so thank you for being here and uh, lighting our fire. Um, I'm wondering, where is the best health economics and health outcomes data being produced from a research standpoint, that, from your perspective? Guttmacher Institute, <laughs> and uh, also ANSWER um, out of UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. Um, they do some remarkable outreach. And Diane Foster Green out of UCSF has a book that came out a couple years ago, um, The Turnback, Turnback Study? I'm sorry? The Turn Away Study, which tracked what happens to folks who are not able to get abortions and has just marked, she's a great researcher. Um, so I get the Turnaway study, look up the Guttmacher Institute, and answer. I'm trying to remember what that acronym is for, but it's out of UCSF in uh, San Francisco. Hi, Catherine, and thank you. Thank you so much. But this, what you just raised about the Turnaway study, has to do with what I'm thinking. How do you understand the disconnect that I see between those people who want to eliminate abortion as a choice and put up roadblocks that privileged, mostly white women can often jump right over so that the impact is heavier on the populations that it seems to me, if you look at a Venn diagram, they don't want more of. Yeah, I know. How do you make sense of that? Do they understand what they're doing? Is There, somebody on the, somebody once argued that 
getting rid of abortion, increased welfare costs. And we had to agree that that was true and a horrific argument, right? Um, the way to decrease welfare costs is to increase employment and opportunities and, and besides is welfare, isn't that a good thing for our money to be going to? Um, so I, you know, I don't know what they're thinking. I, I hope that they're not actually about exterminating um, populations that they don't like by, uh, and that they understand that uh, that's not what abortion is about either. Um, but again, it's a part of a whole, <laughs> a whole health that's going to keep more people alive. Um, it, might re it might result in fewer births, but it's, gonna, it's going to result in fewer deaths allowing abortion. I understand that the majority of abortions nowadays are medical abortions. Are there groups that are trying to protect that right um, after Dobbs? I mean, is there a threat to the medical abortions as well? Yes, um, there are, yes, in places that have outlawed abortion, that includes medication abortion. Um, Telemedicine creates new, it's new opportunities to skirt the law, but it's dangerous to skirt the law. There are states that not only want to make it illegal to have an abortion in their state, but to facilitate the abortion of somebody else. And in some cases, telemedicine is even more dangerous because you say, okay, it's not a, it's not a legal, it's not legal here. I'm going to go over here and get the drugs. But if I come back home, and medically, when you take Mifepristone, the first of the two drugs, that's the abortion. But you're going to come back home be probably before you pass the material. Is the state going to claim that's the abortion and not only prosecute the woman who had it, but the people who gave her the pills? It's deeply complicated. And yes, everybody who cares, who's active in women's health in this issue is trying desperately to make telemed more available, medication abortion more available, everything more available. And everybody who's trying to outlaw abortion is trying desperately to plug each of those leaks and to stop it. It's, it's just, it's the Wild West out there right now with no prediction. And we used to be able to predict some, that eventually things would make it to the courts and there would be some sanity. Now, who knows? Question about uh, what you talked about, like changing the narrative. And I had not heard the term legacy drag, but it makes me think of the phrase catechetical drag. So, like many other people in the Episcopal Church, I came here after growing up and. A little closer. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, growing up and being educated in a devout Catholic household, um, a lot of people that I love and care about feel very differently on this issue. Um, and some family members, because I'm sort of a novelty in living life now in the Episcopal Church, have begun to ask, like, where does the Episcopal Church stand on this? And I see an opening there for conversation, but the catechetical drag piece is, I have decades of arguments and perspectives on the other side. I feel woefully inarticulate on just kind of you know, the, the theological and moral explanations from the Episcopal Church's perspective. 
and I'm just wondering if you have resources to recommend to those of us who can help have those conversations, even just starting at the interpersonal level, like where can we go to just help family members who may even be curious to hearing other perspectives understand. I love your line about we're not, we're not here on this issue in spite of our faith, we're here because of our faith. And in my, I, I know internally that is true, and it would be awesome to know where some resources are to help start having those conversations, so. Catholics for Choice website, they have, so that'll give you the perspective on the Roman Catholic Church and how it recently got to its anti-choice position and, and their arguments against how it arrived at that position and why it arrived at that position. So that's a, especially if you're trying to respond to Roman Catholic folks, that's a great place. And then other people might have more recent references than I do, I'm old. Um, but one of the things I'm thinking about is Beverly Harrison, Beverly Wildung Harrison, who's Presbyterian, but she, um, brilliant ethicist, retired from Union uh, Seminary in New York. She wrote about abortion a lot. So it's sort of, a, and from a theological, it's a theological ethicist. So from a theological ethical approach, Beverly can talk about kind of how all the mainline denominations ended up where they are. Catholics for Choice can talk about how the Roman Catholics ended up where they are and, and ways in which that is inconsistent with who they have been over the ages. Hey, Catherine, how are you? I'm good. Good. Um, thank you so much for being here. I did have a question, um, kind of in the same vein. Um, so I grew up in South Carolina, which um, is a very conservative state. And, you know, um, when it comes to conversations on abortion, it was always the verse, you know, Psalm 139 um, that was spoken before I know you, before you were formed in the mother's womb. Just keep reading two more yeah, verses. Right, I know, right? <laughs> and so I was curious for us as Episcopalian to um, kind of base our identity in not just scripture, but reason and tradition, um, really though looking at um, the biblical witness and, and if you could help guide us in, in stories or, um, or where in scripture that you go to. Yeah, the thing is there is nothing in scripture about abortion. Um, you know, that's so it's, so where we go to is Jesus's love and support for women uh, his including women in his ministry and the fact that not having control over our bodies, not having somebody else exercise control over our bodies inhibits our ability to do our ministry. I, I, actually, I go to Genesis. Each and every one of us was created in the image of God with gifts that we are required to use in the service of God. We are made as God's stewards. If somebody else is controlling our bodies and our lives, then we cannot fulfill the requirement that was made put upon us in our creation and in creation as a whole. That's where I root it back to. But another resource if you want to, so the South is, is kind of um, Bible Belt, Baptist-y kind of South. So I would look at Sister Song, which I believe is in Georgia. Um, and it's largely African-American, but it's sort of Bible Belt women pro-choice group, reproductive justice group that can really, can really get into wrestling with those passages and really talk in that language of the Bible Belt. Lots of questions. I'll make a short person. That's all right. I was actually, sorry, it's a question for you, Joshua, is I think there have been some, you've listed some amazing resources, and I think it'd be great if in your update we had sort of a list, we could have links to those. Um, Sister Song is amazing. Monica McElmore is their director. She's Amazing, Loretta, 
to Florida. Yeah. Um, but uh, the Baltimore Abortion Fund is literally doing the work, picking women up from um, picking up women from BWI. Um, Maryland has expanded practice standards so that there's more abortion services available, but that's still expensive and people have to get here. And the DC Abortion Fund, but. I think it would be great to have a list of resources. Oh, and Mama Tota Village here in DC. We are talking about supporting black women becoming mothers. Mama Toto Village is in Southeast DC, Northeast DC, providing birth support, wraparound support for black mothers in DC. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta stop. I'll give Joshua a list, but if you would also supplement it, that'd be great. And tell them we'll put it on the YouTube. We'll put it up on the- YouTube video. On the YouTube video, we'll get a list up. Okay, yes, real quick. Individuals, if you put up on your social media, hey, I'll give you a room in my house, I'll give you food, I'll take care of your child, nobody knows who you are. It would be really useful if you talked to your, if your clergy talked to their friends around the country, if you talked to your f friends in churches around the country, so that when somebody comes to them in trouble, they say, hey, I know somebody in Washington who can help you, and you're, you're vetted. Just putting it on your social media, you will not get answered. It's dangerous. Thank you.